What's going on, Code listeners? Dr. Andrew Fix here. And I want to tell you about our friends at Element. Element makes a tasty electrolyte drink with everything that you need and nothing that you don't. That means the science-backed electrolyte ratio of sodium, potassium, and magnesium, and none of the junk. No sugar, no coloring, no artificial ingredients, no gluten, no fillers, no BS. And that's why I use it. I've been taking Element for two years now, and I absolutely love the stuff, and I wouldn't want to exercise without it. For all of you code listeners and friends of Physio Room, Element's offered a special to you guys, and I want you to take advantage of it. Go ahead and visit drinkelement.com slash physioroom. That's drinklmnt.com slash physioroom to receive that special offer. You're going to get a free variety pack with any purchase that you place, and I can't wait to hear what you guys think about it. Thanks so much. Welcome to The Code, your guide to health and human performance. I'm your host, Dr. Andrew Fix from Physio Room, a performance-based rehab facility here in Denver. On this podcast, we're going to explore the key areas of your life that impact your overall health and wellness, from sleep hygiene and stress management to nutrition, movement, relationships, and more. We bring you conversations with industry experts and top performers to share strategies they have for cracking the code on health and human performance. Now let's get to today's show. What's going on, guys? Dr. Andrew Fix back for another episode here on The Code. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, and I'm really excited for you guys to hear this interview that we've got lined up for you today. I'm sitting here with my friend, Dr. Aubrey Armento, who is actually a sports medicine physician at Children's Hospital here in Colorado. And additionally, she's the assistant professor uh, in the Department of Orthopedics at the University of Colorado. Um, as she and I were just talking about off air, we met through the running community here um, in a running team that she's a part of. And the topic we're going to get into about relative energy deficiency in sport is one that uh, she is quite experienced in and uh, works with clients in quite often. She actually is the medical director for the running athlete clinic also at Children's Hospital. So thank you so much, Dr. Aubrey, for joining me here on The Code. Yeah, thanks for having me. My pleasure. This is going to be a fun conversation. And uh, like I said, we're going to get into the topic of relative energy deficiency in sport and really sort of tap into your expertise. But, um, but before we start talking about that, would you do me and, uh, and the listeners of this show a favor and just maybe more thoroughly introduce yourself and share a little bit about um, your background with us before you got into the position that, that you're holding now? Sure. So I am a primary care sports medicine physician. That means I do um, non-surgical primary, which is what primary care sports medicine. So not an orthopedic surgeon. My background is actually in pediatrics. So I did a pediatrics residency first, and then I did a uh, one-year primary care sports medicine fellowship where I um, learned primary care sports in both adult and uh, pediatric patients. Did all of that training through the University of Colorado and then um, was lucky enough to be able to stay on uh, faculty at the university in um, the Department of Orthopedics, as you said. And um, my clinical practice is in our sports medicine center um, at Children's. And I split my time um, between uh, clinical work and research work, and both of which focus primarily on relative energy deficiency in sport, what we call RED-S, or the downstream effects of that energy deficiency in um, younger athletes in particular. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's really where a lot of my focus is. I, I do a lot of other 
um, things when it comes to clinical care outside of that. But I'm um, sure. have been working on kind of building my my expertise in in that area and really enjoy um, caring for patients who struggle with this. And um, I see a lot of runners in particular who um, who struggle with this. And so it blends that personal and professional passion for taking care of runners and passion for um, really for sports nutrition. Cause at the end of the day, that's what this kind of comes down to. Um, yeah, yeah. 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 And you and I, we'll get into some of that. Cause you and I were sort of talking before we hit record about, you know, kind of what the typical treatment process looks like when, when you are dealing with a condition like this, but just to make sure that everybody is, is on the same page, you use the term red S and that's probably how we'll keep referring to it for the rest of the show, but um, relative energy deficiency in sport or red S, will you just kind of do a high level overview for us of like, what does that mean? What is that? And um, what would maybe lead into somebody being diagnosed with like, that's what they're dealing with? Sure. So relative energy deficiency in sport or red S really encompasses all of the different effects to the body and also to sports performance that can occur in the setting of energy deficiency. We also use the term low energy availability, which basically means that the body does not have enough energy available to support its normal physiologic functioning. So the way I describe this to people is that every day you need a certain amount of energy just to live and breathe and go to work or school or just live your daily life. Um, and then when you exercise, you obviously burn more calories. So at the end of the day, you have expended a, a certain amount of energy through that exercise and also through just living. Um, and if you don't take in enough calories to support all of that energy, that entire energy demand, then you're left without enough energy to support body functioning. Really, that is what Red S is. It's all the different consequences of of that energy deficiency over time. Um, and we can, you know, talk a little bit about about how that more typically presents. Um, but that's sort of the basis of of Red S and the primary cause is that is that energy deficiency, which can happen in a in a variety of ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thanks for that. Now before we um, get too deep into like, you know, the signs and symptoms and everything like that, when about was it that the term red S and that's being used kind of as the umbrella for, for this myriad of, of, uh, you know, symptoms and everything started to get used. Cause I remember, you know, I would say I'm probably slightly above average educated on this topic, but not nearly to the extent that you are. But I remember when I was going through school, the most common terms that uh, I heard used were, female athlete triad. And we know that this is not something that just happens to females. So could you maybe unpack that a little bit about like, what is red S compared to what is the female athlete triad? And how do males loop into that and whatnot? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, for the listeners who may not know, the female athlete triad is the interplay between energy availability bone health and menstrual function in in female athletes. And we have learned that if somebody has low energy availability, that ultimately leads to 
hormonal suppression or abnormal hormone cycling, which can present as irregular periods or losing your period altogether. And that in combination with low energy availability has a negative impact on bone health. And the female athlete triad was first described in the in the literature in the 80s, the 1980s. Mm-hmm. It's been around for a long time. It's a it's a pretty well-researched topic, still still more to learn about it. But the term relative energy deficiency in sport actually wasn't first published officially in the literature until 2014. So it's well, a much yeah. much more recently described entity. Um, so that was the first consensus statement was released in 2014. There was an update in 2018, and I have heard that there should be another update published this year, actually. And if you look at a picture of the um, diagram of Red S, it has, it's a spoken wheel diagram, and um, on all the spokes there are all the different body systems or performance impairments that can occur as a result of energy deficiency. And within that wheel, they also have the triad. So the triad's kind of included in um, in Red S, or at least that's how I approach it. But Red S mm-hmm. stands beyond bone health and menstrual function to include all these other body systems, and then also is applicable to male athletes. Um, I will say there was um, very recently in 2021, a consensus statement published on the male athlete triad. And so there is still this recognition that the triad, that sort of distinct relationship between energy availability and reproductive hormone suppression and bone health, I think is important to recognize, but it's also important to realize that that's not all that is just affected, right? We're learning that there are a lot of other sort of downstream effects of energy deficiency and red S sort of encompasses that broader picture. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for doing that. And I love that, you know, from being someone that works in healthcare, you know, enjoys exercising and understands all of the body systems that are affected by how we live our lives and, you know, the energy you have, the activity you do, the sleep, the stress and everything. I'm glad that we now have a term that is much more broad and much more all encompassing because, you know, nowhere in those triads are even something as simple as, you know, if you're underfueled, it's going to impair your muscle repair or something like that, you know, bone health in there. But um, I'm glad we have a term that's much more broad. So, Aubrey, you said in your practice, you get to blend this passion project of like your career plus your activity that you love to do. You get to work with a lot of runners. You're a runner. Tell us a little bit about your running journey and and like when did you get into really like endurance running and and when was it that that you decided that you wanted to go down this route from like a career standpoint too? Yeah. Um, so I've been a runner since high school. I ran cross country and track. And then in college, as I, uh, I started running marathons in college with a club running team. So I've been, I've been running marathons for a while now, 10, 10 plus years, but it really wasn't until the last, I would say five years or so that I decided I wanted to train more seriously for the marathon and really try to, to run some faster times. Um, and that led me to, as you mentioned, our our connection through Denver Metro Racing and um, me wanting to find a group of women to train with and a coach. And so um, 
really over the last several years, I've been kind of working more more towards chasing some faster times than the marathon and doing trail running. Yeah. We live in Colorado and there are is no shortage of um, amazing trails to run on. Um, I also have been injured a lot. Um, yeah. I feel like I have probably had almost all of the most common running related injuries that there are, which I do think gives me some um, perspective when I uh, treat patients with these injuries, because oftentimes I, I really can relate to how how it feels. But I, I struggled um, with disordered eating for, for many years through high school into college and even some into medical school, had a lot of injuries, have had a couple of bone stress injuries. And I basically have had the, had the triad and, and read us myself. And so um, it, it, as I was learning more about the science behind it and recognizing that I myself have struggled with this, but there wasn't really anybody who put a name to it for a really yeah. long time, right? That um, I became even more kind of passionate about um, caring for athletes, especially young athletes who I feel like are very vulnerable to mm-hmm. sometimes the not so great pressures of, of sport and sort of the dark side of, of running in particular, or really any sport that emphasizes leanness or this sort of ideal body shape or appearance and we you know we just see disordered eating and eating disorders a lot more and in those populations um and so yeah really just being passionate about treating those patients but also more about spreading awareness and promoting um prevention of of eating disorders and red ass in general because it really can lead to a lot of Negative consequences, but long-term effects too, especially when we think about like bone health, for example, in adolescent athletes where that's their time to make their bones as strong as possible and kind of missing that window of opportunity can can really lead to a lot of um, long-term consequences into into adulthood. So long story short, um, personal experience. Um, blended together with me just being a total nerd about everything kind of <laughs> sports science and running medicine related has has brought me to this point. But there's still so much more we need to learn, which is also what I think drives my desire to do more research in this area. Yeah, and I and I think that's awesome because it it just like adds more fuel to the fire behind like your motivation to want to do this because you have that personal connection and personal experience with it, which I appreciate you sharing. I was going to ask you that basically, but you already answered like three of the questions I was going to ask you in, in that um, description. So, um, and then you mentioned that you've sort of dealt with a, like a lot of different running related injuries. Um, I believe I've said this on other episodes of this show, because we kind of have a little bit of a running cadence going on this show. But for any of you runners out there who are listening, if you've dealt with any of these things, uh, the top six, not necessarily in this order, but basically in this order, top six running related injuries are knee pain of either the anterior patellofemoral variety or the IT band. So the front of your knee or the side of your knee hurting is typically where you're going to see that. What we call medial tibial stress syndrome, aka shin splints. There again, I think, you know, shin splints is a little more specific and medial tibial stress syndrome is a little bit more broad, but pain there down along the shin, along the tibia, typically on the medial side of your lower leg, plantar fasciitis, Achilles tendon issues, whether that's tendonitis or tendinopathy, 
and bone stress injuries, stress fractures, right? So those are the six. If I had to throw a seventh one in there, the most common thing that I see in the clinic is lower back pain. It's probably like the seventh thing, but I've definitely had runners with all of those things. I've dealt with probably all of those with the fortunate exception of, I don't believe I've ever had a stress fracture. And uh, I also fortunately haven't had the pleasure of dealing with IT band syndrome myself. But, um, you know, we've treated clients, of course, with all of those things. And the one in particular, from a physical therapy standpoint, that is always like the most concerning is when we do have a concern that there's a stress fracture present, right? Mm -hmm. Typically, we want to keep people training, keep people exercising and work through these things. But if we suspect there's a bone injury, we're referring for imaging, we're referring to somebody like yourself, um, or any other type of physician to help manage that situation, and really start to dig into, you know, the deeper story of like, okay, what's going on that even led to that in the first place? Because the easy answer, I think a lot of times is, oh, it's just a volume issue. But it's never just a volume issue. There's always a lot more that goes into it. Because if you were training really well, you were running a lot of volume, you were sleeping great, you weren't stressed, and you were eating really adequately, you probably wouldn't lead, wouldn't uh, be suffering from a stress fracture. So, Aubrey, let, let me ask you this. What are, when someone comes into your office, or, or if you're talking to people about Red S, what are some of the common, like, signs and symptoms that um, one should be paying attention for? Like, what does this typically present like? Yeah, well, you brought up an excellent point about the bone stress injuries and always questioning what else may be going on beyond just a training load or a rapid mm -hmm. increase in, in training load over time. And I will say, oftentimes, coming in with patients coming in with a bone stress injury is the presenting issue that that I, you know, leads me to end, end up uncovering um, red S. Uh, so bone yeah. stress injuries in general, I mean, I screen every bone stress injury, every patient with a bone stress injury I see in clinic for, um, for the triad, basically. So just asking questions around nutrition and restrictive eating behaviors, weight loss, changes, you know, changes in diet, as well as in, in female athletes asking about their menstrual history, um, history of missing periods, skipped periods, you know, those sorts of questions um, that are important to ask. I, I think with anybody who comes in with a bone stress injury is you'll oftentimes uncover something that, you know, is underlying and important to address. So bone stress injuries would be one. We're learning that it uh, there may be um, associated injury risks outside of bone um, injuries that recurrent or refractory soft tissue injuries may be associated yeah. with us. The literature around that is still not nearly as flushed out as it is with the bone stress injury piece of things. Sure. But um, yeah. if I see, you know, people coming in, like it's just one injury after the other, after the other, or um, they're doing all the right things, but, you know, right things, I guess I'll say that in quotes, you know, they're, they're going to rehab, they've modified their activity if they need to, and, and things are not getting better, I'll start to kind of look a little bit bigger picture and ask some, some more questions around um, nutrition. And then Performance declines is another common one. So, you know, I previously was able to keep up with XYZ or run these times and I was feeling good. And now I'm just like 
I just can't do it. Like I'm, I'm slower or I feel terrible during every workout or mm-hmm. I don't know what's going on. I used to be just fine running like this and, and now it feels so hard or my legs feel like lead. Like I get a lot of those sorts of descriptions or um, fatigue. We all, you know, everyone's kind of busy and you expect a degree of fatigue, you know, at a, at a higher level of training, but sort of fatigue beyond what has been, you know, that sort of baseline level sleep disturbances. Um, so I'm so tired, but I have trouble sleeping or I'm always tired during the day. I want to sleep more. And then another common one I um, hear is um, digestive complaints. Um, sure. So gas, bloating, constipation, feeling really full really quickly with eating. And interestingly, I find a lot of people assume that they have some sort of food intolerance. And they start yeah. to cut things out of their diet, which in mm-hmm. some cases that may, they may have a food intolerance, right? But um, oftentimes in my experience, it's, they just need to be eating more food. It's not like, it's not a food intolerance. It's the fact that they have um, red S and, and one of the ways the body uh, adapts to that energy deficiency is it, it basically slows the gut down. And sure. so you can experience all of these different symptoms be, because of that. But we'll see the dietitian I work with and I see um, people who come in and have cut out gluten and dairy and soy and all the things. And we're like, hold on a second, hold on a second. Like this may not actually be related to a a food intolerance itself, but more so just a a fueling and energy deficiency. So kind of have to unpack that a little bit. And then um, iron deficiency um, is a common one. I will see um, vitamin D deficiency as well. Those obviously um, involve lab work and, um, but some people may come in already with, you know, their primary care physician who's, who's ordered that. And then a really common referral I get for female athletes is, is menstrual irregularities too. Yeah. Yeah. Now sort of to go just a little bit deeper on the lab work question, is there ever a time or, or is there a test, I guess, that you often find yourself asking for or ordering for that isn't part of a normal like blood work or lab work panel? Is there something else that you're usually looking for? Yeah, good question. So we don't currently have like one lab test that really sort of seals the diagnosis for something like this. Ultimately, the diagnosis is made by by seeing a, a dietitian who can actually calculate yeah. your energy availability and determine whether yeah. there's a deficiency there. But um, I will say, you know, doing, you know, a complete blood count, screening for for anemia, doing iron studies and vitamin D are, are pretty common ones. I'll usually check like a complete metabolic panel as well, like looking at liver function. Thyroid. So your traditional thyroid um, studies involve a TSH, which is thyroid stimulating hormone, and then mm-hmm. T4, which is like one type of thyroid hormone. There is evidence that T3, which is a different type of thyroid hormone, can be suppressed in red S. And that's not something that's like typically ordered, but I will sometimes consider it. But I I personally don't order that on a routine basis. Um, But I do know some clinicians who like to. And if it's low, that sort of fits this picture of red S. 
And then there are certainly indications for doing more hormonal testing um, dependent on the, the patient. But if there's, you know, if I see an athlete who's lost their periods, they've gone three months or more without a period or have had six or fewer periods in the prior year and haven't had any hormone testing, we'll do that. And then there's also a recommendation for male athletes to test testosterone if there's concern for testosterone deficiency. Um, But those aren't like ordered across the board. It's very, you know, dependent on um, the patient and um, what their history is like. Uh, But other than that, uh, there's not really any other sort of kind of more unusual blood blood work. I'll sometimes do a little bit more of a deeper dive into bone health for someone who's had like multiple bone stress injuries or their bone density yeah. is quite low. And you want to make sure that there's not some sort of underlying bone disorder going on that would, would sure. be contributing, right? You always want to make sure you're excluding like other organic pathologies that aren't sort of functional in nature, which it, this is, you know, functional in the sense that it's this combination of exercise and underfueling of a variety of sorts that sort of leads to this energy deficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for explaining that. And, and that all makes great sense to me. And something that you mentioned a little bit ago, maybe right before that question was this condition and, you know, underfueling is much more tied with like bone stress, bone health compared to like other soft tissue, repeated injuries and things, but that's sometimes a sign and symptom you might see. This is totally anecdotal. I have no no uh, data to support what I'm about to say. But one thing that I think we see a trend of in the clinic, as far as it relates to nutrition and repeated soft tissue related injuries, particularly like tendon related ones, is um, we end up a lot of times when we're struggling to see someone respond to, you know, a treatment approach that typically would work for like, say, their Achilles or, or some other type of tendon. They're doing the things we ask them to do. The client is. We're doing the treatment we think is very appropriate. And we're not seeing the response. We start digging into nutrition and sleep and other things a bit more. And one thing that I think we see a trend of is if people are not necessarily under consuming calories, but under consuming protein, their repairability is, and is just potentially not there. And um, we usually will recommend either whether, whether we're going to start getting into like, we're not going to prescribe something from a nutrition standpoint, but if it starts getting out of our scope, we start referring to a nutritionist or a dietitian. And what we've seen a handful of times is we take these people who are like chronically hurt, they're not eating enough protein and we see them start to incorporate more into their diet. And once you know it, there's their achy, constant symptoms start clearing up a little bit more. So it definitely is no surprise to me and hopefully no one else that's listening to this that how you feel your body is going to have a big impact on how your body feels and responds to the training that you're trying to put it through. Now, your running background is a bit different than mine, but but I too have had my fair share of, of injuries, mostly the soft tissue variety. Largely, I was a sprinter most of my life or a mid-distance runner. You know, I was running 400s and 800s in, uh, in college meets, in high school meets. I actually ran the 100, the 400, and the 800 in a college meet once, which is not a common uh, common three events for the same person no. to do. But um, 
I just happened to be the fourth fastest 100 meter person on our team. So I got put in a relay, but, um, <laughs> but I, you know, I don't think, you know, this condition red S is quite as common probably in like a sprinter type of person compared to an endurance runner or an endurance athlete. Probably the sport that I spent the most time participating in that is maybe more likely to see this than sprinting is uh, I was a wrestler in high school and there's a lot of weight management being involved there and people cutting weight and, and restricting calories and hydration to, uh, to make, make weight. What's up guys, Dr. Andrew Fix back here from The Code. This episode is brought to you by Zero Shoes where they want you to live life feet first. These might be my favorite shoes to train in. They're thin, flexible, and probably the most comfortable shoes I've ever worn. No, honestly, I do almost all of my workouts in these shoes. If you haven't heard our podcast with founder Steven Sashin, you've got to go back and listen to it to find out what all the hype's all about. Do yourself a favor and step into a pair today. Maybe even put their 5,000-mile sole warranty to the test. Visit zeroshoes.com backslash go backslash Dr. Andrew Fix to find the pair that's right for you. That's X-E-R-O shoes.com backslash go backslash Dr. Andrew Fix and find the pair that's right for you. Live life feet first. One thing I wanted to ask you is, of course, we know and we're talking about how this is common in the running athlete, particularly the endurance running athlete, youth and adult. Um, what other sports or activities do you see this being like most common in? Yeah, so it tends to be more common in um, sports that are a little bit put a little bit more emphasis on like aesthetics or sort of this lean physique which um i mean like gymnastics and dance um cheer as well figure skating um and then weight-based sports like you said wrestling definitely a big one um or more you know kind of variety of different weight lifting where there's a lot of emphasis on on that and then kind of what I call anti-gravity sports so like rock climbing pole vaulting sure. um and then your endurance athletes like you mentioned so runners but we you know see can see this often in um you know cyclists and swimmers too um so it definitely tends to favor those um those types of sports it doesn't mean you know we don't see it outside of those realms but certainly mm-hmm. i think the nature of the sports like the nature of the activity itself and then the nature of like the culture around yeah. um the sport uh just tends to i think sort of promote behaviors that put people more at risk for this yeah yeah, let me ask you a, a follow-up question on that because that all makes makes good sense. And I think, um, you know, in a lot of those sports, there is definitely, when we start talking from a scientific standpoint, there are definitely some advantages to being lighter and leaner, like as a rock climber. Or, I mean, if you're cycling for hundreds and hundreds of miles, well, with my current body type, I'm not the most efficient cyclist in the world. I can put out a lot of power, but I won't be holding that for, you know, 10 hours on a bike or something. Do you think some of that maybe, uh, maybe pressure or culture of the sport? And I don't even know if, if this is true. I'm making an assumption here. I guess the first question would be, do you find this to be more common in females than in males? And if that yeah. is true, do you think the, the pressure and culture and whatnot of some of the sports and activities might be one of the contributors to why that might be? 
Yeah. So yes, um, it is more common as far as we know in female athletes. And I'll say kind of what we know about red S and then also what we know about disordered eating um, in athletes tends to be more common in female athletes. That being said, we also think that the occurrence of this is probably underreported in male athletes, especially around disordered eating and eating disorders. There may be a bit more of a stigma around that in the male athlete population. So perhaps we're just not capturing those um, patients as frequently. Um, and then same goes, you know, for um, for red S. A lot of the studies we have, kind of prevalence studies, are are smaller studies that kind of look at specific athlete groups. Oftentimes include, you know, males and females, but um, it seems to be more more predominant in females. And interestingly, we're learning that it seems that male athletes can tolerate lower levels of energy availability before they get these downstream physiologic consequences compared to females, meaning like that threshold um, to kind of push into this red ass is lower in female athletes. They just like need Mm -hmm. more of that energy availability to, to support um, their functioning. And, and it's less studied in, in the male athlete population, but there are some really great people that are trying to learn, trying to learn more about it. Um, To your question about pressure, I think, yes, that's definitely still a problem. Um, I think a lot of people just don't really understand the consequences of kind of energy restriction to your point like Mm -hmm. we can't really deny physics right like lighter is is often in in terms faster or more efficient and can provide some sort of performance advantage but we've learned that for people who purposefully restrict to get to that lighter weight like it is temporary because ultimately your your body starts to break down it's not sustainable it, it can't handle that long-term yeah. energy deficiency over time so while we may see some short-term gains the long-term effects um oftentimes can put people out of sport for for a long time right and so I think it's recognizing that and then also recognizing that there are a lot of other ways besides cutting five pounds that you can optimize your performance that don't really have any negative consequences, such as sleeping more. Right. I mean, and so um, so I, I, I feel that there is starting to be a bit of a culture shift around just like promoting more awareness of the triad and red S and like you know, I hope to see more, more change in the culture and, and around kind of coaching approaches and, and all of that. Um, but I, I still feel like we have a long way to go. And I do definitely think that there are sport and societal pressures that contribute to, to this problem. Yeah, yeah. And, and I agree with you totally. And I, I would also agree that I think, um, just from my own experience in, you know, male locker rooms and whatnot, I would venture to guess that there's a drastic underreporting of, of stuff like this. I mean, yeah. one thing that we, that we see for sure, just in, in physical therapy, not even in our clinic at physio room, but just physical therapy. And I think healthcare in general is we have more female clients. I think, I think males are less likely to seek out the help when there is a problem. They're more of like a DIY type of situation first, whereas females are maybe more apt to do that. But as you were explaining that and some of like the long-term consequences and the 
you know, the threshold maybe for a female dipping into this red S situation is lower than for a male body. What my mind keeps thinking about is just how our bodies work and how evolution works where, you know, our body is designed to focus on survival over everything else. And if that means other things like optimal reproductive function and everything else need to be suppressed, the body's just trying to find a way to survive. And it scraps all those other things in the meantime, just like it shifts shifts temperature when we're trying to maintain our core heat and everything. So that, that's where my mind goes is like, you know, our body is just trying to, so maybe that's why maybe there's some of those differences from the females to males, because obviously there's a huge reproductive responsibility on the female body. But I, I think that's a great point to make because, and, and I will often sort of describe that to patients, like your body's trying to conserve energy. It's not getting enough energy and it, yeah. your body doesn't really recognize like why that's happening. It's just knows that it has an energy deficiency and it starts to make adaptations to conserve energy. So like you said, you get that reproductive suppression In extreme, you know, more extreme cases, we can see sort of this like hibernation mode where we see, you know, resting heart rate drop sometimes to into dangerous levels and mm. temperature dysregulation. And, um, uh, you know, like the, the body sort of is trying to, yeah, trying to, to conserve energy. And it's, it's pretty remarkable <laughs> what it can can do to adapt, but those adaptations yeah. are not good, right? We we don't really want anybody to to experience those types of sort of caveman or hibernation adaptations. Um, but um, at the core of it all, really, that that is that is what's happening. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And I and I agree. Our body does some amazing things. Uh, not always good, but. It's um, it's just trying to keep on moving. So moving forward, let's shift gears just a little bit, Aubrey. To we we talked a lot about you know the signs and symptoms, commonly what we see populations and patient subsets that this is common in. Well, let's start talking about how do we address it and how do we treat it. And you already alluded to some of this stuff. You have mentioned dietitians and nutrition um, a lot already in this episode, and I know that's one of the major ways that you go about addressing and treating a situation like this, but what does a typical kind of treatment approach that's very well-rounded look like when you determine someone has energy deficiency? First step is typically referral to ideally a sports dietitian. Um, we're lucky to have a sports dietitian that works with our sports medicine group. So she and I collaborate very closely with these patients, but ultimately what a dietitian is going to do is they're going to Take your energy intake. So you usually do, you know, a three-day food log or food frequency questionnaire, a way to give them sort of the most accurate representation of, of what you take in food-wise on a day-to-day -day basis. And then they collect an exercise history. And through some calculations and math, they basically can produce this energy availability number, right? So um, they can calculate energy availability and determine whether there's low energy availability and what kind of energy deficit there may be. Meaning, let's say you're your calculated energy needs are 3,000 3, calories a day and you're only eating 2,000 calories a day, right? That's a 1,000 yeah. calorie deficit, but you may be maintaining over a long period of time. And then the dietitian will figure out how to make up for that um, deficit, right? And obviously, it's 
there, it's more intricate than this, but this is kind of in its most simplistic terms. Um, so creating some sort of food plan, meal plan that involves increasing caloric intake, you know, making sure to your point of protein that you're getting a balanced amount of carbs, proteins, fats, and our other micronutrients that we think about, like um, iron and vitamin D, for example, the more common ones. Um, and then basically working, you know, they work with clients to track that progress over time to ensure that they're, they are meeting their energy needs on a consistent um, basis through sort of continual reassessment of food intake and exercise expenditure. Um, so that's really the mainstay of of treatment is is connecting and um, that continuity with um, a sports dietitian. The other thing I think is important is um, assessing for for disordered eating um, or an eating yeah. disorder, and if that is a part of the picture, making sure that that um, patient is connected with. Um, the right kind of mental health resources. Um, so oftentimes referral to ideally, a, you know, a sports psychologist or someone comfortable working with athletes who also, you know, has that eating disorder experience. That's going to be really, really critical in that case. And then, you know, I, I think just a multidisciplinary care model. So, if, you know, if that patient is working with a physical therapist, for example, making sure that you're looping the physical therapy um, team, the athletic, you know, athletic trainer or whatever setting you're kind of working in to ensure that everybody who's caring for that athlete kind of understands, understands what's going on and can provide that sort of support. Um you know, there are certainly cases where I'll refer or consult like endocrinology um, or um, are, like an eating disorder specialist if there's concern that, you know, that patient needs maybe more a higher level of care. Um, but big picture is, yeah, addressing the energy deficiency and, and doing that with a with a sports dietitian. There are, you know, other sometimes other treatments that that need to be considered. So I'll give you the example of like a female athlete who hasn't had a had a period, let's say she hasn't had a period for a year. Um, right. You you want to do the assessment for their bone density to ensure that um, they don't have low bone density. If they do, sometimes depending on those numbers, especially if they're not necessarily responding or really struggling with the nutritional intervention, there is data to support the use of um an estradiol patch, which is basically a patch delivery of estrogen um, that has been shown to be effective in increasing bone density in athletes who don't have a period better than like the or the oral contraceptive pill versus mm -hmm. nothing at all. Um, so in certain circumstances, you know, we may have to reach outside of that nutritional intervention, but the nutritional intervention is always part of the treatment plan. Yeah. But the tricky part about treating this is that it takes a long time for the body to recover. Um, so we can see, you know, in the first several months, some reversal of the adaptations that have been made in the setting of Red S, but it can take six months or beyond sometimes for people to um, get a regular period back. And it can take... Yeah a year or more for bone density to improve. And that's really in the, in the um, patients who are still within the age range of really being able to increase their bone density, right? Once you kind of hit your mid to late twenties, there's really not a whole lot of, of room for um, 
a big jump in bone density, it kind of turns more into trying to slow the decline of bone loss over time. Um, so yeah, so it's, it's, uh, it just takes a while and it takes a commitment to the, that nutrition, um, nutritional intervention, which is, is hard to do. And, um, yeah, you know, is is definitely is definitely work, um, but really is kind of at the heart of of treatment for red S. I'm glad you mentioned the not only the time piece and that you know you're not going to expect to see changes happen within a week or even in a month or anything like that. That this is going to likely take several months, if not longer, to really go throughout this course of care. But with the you know, younger clients that you tend to work with, what type of challenges do you sometimes see, you know, knowing that we've got to get coaches involved, we've got to get parents and families involved in this, because a lot of times they're at the forefront of the food making decisions, or at least the buying of some of these athletes, potentially, um, did that pose some some increase in uh, difficulty, really like honing in this treatment plan? Yeah, so I think when you're treating the uh, pediatric athletes, um, you know, you're treating the, the family too, and having the parents or care, whoever is the primary caregiver on board is is critical, right? And so um, a lot of time is spent around not only educating the patient, but ed- educating the family around um, why we are recommending what we're recommending. Um, mm-hmm. I will say, unfortunately, I do see kind of Sometimes parents bring their own sort of misguided beliefs around food and and what a diet should look like or um, body image concerns to the table. And and that can I mean, that is something that is can be hard to work um, to work with, but is is important to acknowledge and address. So I kind of I see it run the spectrum. You know, I see some. Some families that are like super on board, they're like, this makes sense. We're going to do this, you know, give us the plan. We're going to, we're going to follow it. And that's that. Um, but more often than not, it's, it's not that simple. There's either, um, you know, like disordered eating, body image concerns that can definitely impair progress and in, in this realm, which is why I think it's so important to identify those as soon as you can and get people connected to that mental health support to work through that piece of things. But yeah, I think the other thing is just um, the time and like dedication that it takes to follow a lot of these meal plans, especially when we're thinking about, you know, a 15 year old boy who plays three different sports and is in six AP classes or whatever it is that kids are doing these days and has a jam packed schedule, right? Where you're also trying to get them to eat 4,000 calories a day, right? Like it's, it's a lot to, to plan for. And um, it's hard to like work it, figure out how to work that into very busy schedules. And, and I recognize that that's not just limited to that adolescent population, right? There are adults right. that have really busy schedules and their parents and balancing jobs and, and everything else that, you know, takes up so much time and just trying to, figure out how to build that nutrition in as a, as a higher priority, I think is a very understandable and common challenge that, that people face when they're, when they're trying to move forward with treatment for this. Yeah, definitely. There was a question that I was about to ask you and it's kind of slipping my mind, but I have another one for you. Just red S in general. I know like you specialize in the pediatric world 
is is there like an age range that we find that this is most common in? Hmm. Um, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that. My sense is that it's probably more in the high school and collegiate age group, purely just yeah. based off of like the level of competition <laughs> and, and training. Um, certainly like elite athletes struggle with this because just of the demand of, of training yeah. and of their sport, right? But elite athletes make up a, a overall very small subset of our population. Um, sure, totally. So yeah, I'd, I'd probably say kind of adolescence into, you know, 20s to, to 30s. But I mean, as you work with probably a lot of, you know, athletes who are in their 40s to 50s too, who can struggle mm-hmm. with this. So yeah, so so uh, my inclination is to say maybe that younger population, but I don't actually know if we have enough data that like includes sort of that broad spectrum of ages to to say it is more common in in this age group. Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Well, thanks for taking a stab at that one anyways. I did remember the question I was going to ask you. You know, something I said earlier with the exception of bone stress injuries is when someone is coming in to see us in the clinic, they say they're dealing with shoulder pain or knee pain, we're doing everything we can to try and keep them in their activity or sport as much as possible while we address it. Assuming that someone comes to see you and you determine and you and your team determine that, you know, this person is deficient of energy, they qualify for red S assuming they don't have a bone stress injury. How does, how do you guys typically manage the like participation of them in their sport or activity? Is that something that you're having to pull back a little bit? while they focus on the nutrition piece, or are you trying to focus on the nutrition and keep them continuing to exercise, knowing that there might be an increased risk of them sustaining some sort of injury? How do you guys normally handle that in that conversation? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, It depends a lot on each individual patient. We do have some guidelines. So there is something called the REDS clinical assessment tool um, that basically uh, has sort of a a stoplight schematic to it. So green meaning, you know, you've got, um, you've demonstrated optimal energy availability. There's no sort of like downstream kind of medical consequences like green is go, there's no restrictions. Then there's the yellow where they basically recommend sort of some sort of provisional participation or a degree of limited participation um and then there's like red where it's like that's a no-go and typically the the no-go is um i would say if you kind of think more about like clinical eating disorders um you know anorexia for example like very low weight very low resting heart rate where like there's concern for sort of medical safety around participating in um sports that would sort of potentially entirely eliminate somebody from sport for a period of time and until they are more medically stable. Although like the data around that is we still need to learn more about sort of the role of exercise and eating disorder treatment. Um, Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so I think it really, it depends a lot on sort of what sort of downstream complications we may be seeing in the setting of red S of, of that participant and like kind of their de- degree of activity. Um, but oftentimes 
we are pulling back on activity to a certain degree um, just because it sometimes is, is necessary to, to focus more on the nutrition and to try to help people get into that positive energy balance state that, that we want them to be in. And also, you know, because of risk of injury too. So um, yeah, it depends a lot, but there are oftentimes circumstances in which we may need to consider um, limiting participation for a period of time. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for discussing that. And, and I agree. I think, you know, every situation is unique. That makes, makes good sense to me, but um, you know, you or any other provider, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be potentially, you know, pulling someone back a little bit and pulling the reins on activity if we didn't think it was necessary and um, important to make sure that we're thinking about the longevity factor here and the long-term implications of what's going on. Um, And I'm really glad that you brought up kind of the, the, mental health referral, the sports psychology and whatnot, because they're, you know, with, with all of this that we've been talking about, there's a huge mental component to it. It is definitely not as simple as you just need to eat more. And then that person goes and is able to do that. There is a lot more that goes into it. So I'm glad that you brought that part up because I think if, you know, the last handful of years taught us anything with the pandemic and everything like mental health is something that's really important. And a lot of times I think we take for granted and um, we work on other areas of our, of our life. We work on our fitness, we work on our, our sleep or whatever. But a lot of times we don't focus on that area. So I'm really glad you brought that up. Aubrey, before we start the process here of just like wrapping this up and letting people know where that they can go to get more information what I want to ask you, is there anything that we missed that, you know, you talk about this on a regular basis with clients, with colleagues, is there something that we haven't hit on that you think would be important about Red S? I think we've done a fairly good job. Yeah, I feel, I feel like we have hit all of the main points I, I want to hit. I would, I would say, I think probably one thing I would just say is that you know, I, I always encourage people if they if they think something's not right or they're recognizing that they're struggling with sort of any of these things that we've talked about, like it can never hurt to see somebody who specializes in this to to get a better understanding of, of whether something may may be going on, right? Like um I always yeah. try to, you know, do my part to eliminate any sort of like hesitancy or stigma that people may feel um, feel around this because it is common, probably more common than we even really recognize it, you know, at, at this point. And, and it is something that's treatable too, right? And can and make a big difference if it if it is caught sooner rather than than later and and treated um, appropriately. So, yeah, so I would just encourage people if, you know, they're hearing things that say make them think, oh, this sounds sounds like me. I wonder if this is something I'm I'm experiencing, like, you know, see somebody who can can help you figure figure that out. Yeah, yeah, I, I love that. And and you're absolutely right. Like, don't be afraid to ask questions, seek out some assistance. Um, you know, I probably used to be somebody who was, um, you know, too proud to ask for help in situations and we all need, need to ask for help here and there. So, um, definitely if, you know, if you are 
training and you're starting to notice any of those symptoms that Aubrey mentioned earlier, like you're just not recovering how you think you should, you're not performing how you think you should, despite the work that you're putting in, you're experiencing signs of burnout or, or anything like that. And you're just like losing some of the passion. Um, and you think at all that, um, that would be worth a conversation with someone. Definitely go do that. Um, Aubrey, I really appreciate your time hopping on here on the podcast with me to to have this conversation. Uh, if if this discussion we just had brings up any questions from people, whether that's like Instagram or email or anything like that, is there a way that anyone can get in touch with you and we'll make sure to, uh, or any any resources that you would recommend and we'll make sure to put those things in the show notes for everybody? Yeah, for sure. Um, I am on... Uh, Twitter, but I'm not super active on Twitter, I would say. But you can always find me and send me a message that way. Or I'm also happy to um, to give you my email, Andrew, if you want to post it in the, um, in the show notes. And then I would say some resources. So these are more specific to female athletes, but there is um, a great program out of Stanford called faster. Um, yeah. Female athlete. Translational research. Yeah. 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 And they have some really nice um, videos and other educational resources for athletes and um, patients and families um, that I usually recommend as a good place to start just to learn a little bit more about Red S. And then the other one would be the female athlete program out of Boston Children. So on the other coast, um, uh, they also have um, a lot of resources um, through um, through their website. So female athlete program, Boston children's, um, that's usually where I recommend, um, people start. Uh, yeah. Awesome. No, those are great. I will do my best to get those in the show notes for this so that you guys can go find those. Um, I am familiar with that faster program that you mentioned, not Mm -hmm. like super in depth, but I'm aware of it. And, and, um, they are doing some awesome work there. So, Again, Aubrey, I really appreciate your time. Um, thank you so much for being here on the show. Thank you to all of you guys that tuned in to listen to this conversation with Aubrey and I. And um, if you have any questions that come up as a result of this, please don't hesitate to let me know. You can find all of my information in the show notes too. Or if you're going to go um, hop on whatever podcast platform you're using to listen to this, we do have a goal. We're trying to increase our reviews here. So go drop us a review post your questions or any other thoughts or ideas of topics that you had that came up and um, we'll be sure to get some episodes out on those things for you guys. So Aubrey, I hope you have an awesome rest of your night and thank you again so much for joining me. Yeah, this was really great. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you guys so much. We'll catch you on the next episode of The Code. Bye-bye.